Well, let's get started. Uh, we'll start with prayer, and then we'll start looking at, at our notes. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the grace we have in Christ. We thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from, from all sin and unrighteousness. We thank you for this time of the year when we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. We pray that on this Resurrection Sunday that uh, Christ will truly be lifted up. Now we pray for tonight's discussion that you'll uh, give us wisdom and give me clarity of thought. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, uh, let's... Uh, we left off, and if my notes are correct, my hand notes, we should be on page 33. Now, am I right on that, the National Thanksgiving Song? Okay, so we want to take our notes and take our Bible. Um, as I mentioned, you'll see my notes from the text are taken right from the uh, New American Standard Bible. Since your church is uses the NIV, I will be using that as well. So when it comes to translations, I'm ambidextrous, so to speak. I can use various versions. When somebody asks me what's my favorite version, I usually prefer to say, you know, I like to go back to the Hebrew text. That to me is where our standard of authority is. So, you know, I like to look at versions because there are areas where some are right, some are wrong. As far as readability, uh, our children were raised on the NIV. Uh, I don't agree with all its translation, but it was easy to understand. So, well, uh, this is the Bible I do know the best, and I memorized my verses from the NIV. However, I'm not a TNIV guy. You need to know that. <laughs> so, and I'm waiting with bated breath to see what happens with the... Uh, updated NIV because I wonder once you start down the gender inclusive path, can you really go back? So I am curious. I suspect they may not go far enough in going back. But that's just my gut feeling because I think evangelicals are compromising all over the place. And it's scary how much they are denying and still being called an evangelical. That's what the stress was made. So, anyway, I won't be disappointed. I, my favorite literal translation is the ESV. So our church uses NASB, so I'm just a confused person. <laughs> You're using the ESV? Okay, good. So I, uh, I mean, I use it. I like to use it. It's my favorite literal translation. Uh, but when I want something that's, you know, you can read the flow quickly, I use the NIV and things like that. Okay, so let's turn our Bible to Psalm 124. Psalm 124. We're looking at these Thanksgiving Psalms. Last week we looked at an individual Thanksgiving Psalm, and we went through Psalm 32. And we spent most of the night looking at Psalm 32 because Psalm 32 is a great psalm. It's rich with theology. It gives us an insight into what an Old Testament believer thought like. Uh, same thing when we did Psalm 51. We took two weeks. Well, that's because that's another theologically rich psalm. It's one every believer should identify with because when I sin, 
You know, I usually thank God for First John 1 9, but I go back to Psalm 51. So it's a very important. So both of those are important. Tonight, this uh, it is important because it is a national thanksgiving psalm. But as far as informing us about an Old Testament believer's sanctification, it doesn't tell us much. It tells us more about the life of the nation. But I think that's also important. So we'll pick up here on page 33. How we can tell this is a national thanksgiving psalm is by noticing the uh, personal pronouns. Notice we have R and us. So if it's the first common plural, ours, us, uh, then that's called a, a corporate or national Thanksgiving psalm. Same thing was true with, uh, with the lament psalms. We had individual, we had national. With Psalm 32, we saw it was an individual Thanksgiving hymn. This is a national Thanksgiving hymn. Notice it's only eight verses long. And the message of it's not real complex. It's really pretty simple but rewarding. So let's look at the three literary, literary elements of Psalm 124. Notice verses 1 and 2. Notice the expression of praise to the Lord. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say. If the Lord had not been on our side. Let's pause there. Now that's not like other Thanksgiving psalms where they're more specific, more explicit about their expression of praise to God. This is more by implication. Really the point is, is the Lord was on our side. And so there's, there's an element of thanksgiving. Uh, notice also in verses 2b through 5 and 6 to 7, Notice the description of the distress and deliverance. Notice the psalm continues, When men had attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. <clears throat> the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Look at verse 6 and 7. We have escaped like a bird. Notice the simile there. Out of the fowler's snare. The snare had been broken and we have escaped. Notice that's a, a description of their deliverance. Did you notice verses 2 through 5? <coughs> notice here, notice the metaphors. Well, verse 2b, that's not a metaphor. When men attacked us, they did attack. When their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. Now, that's something of a metaphor. But it means they would have destroyed us. Notice verse 4. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Now, from what we know about the psalm, this doesn't relate to Noah's flood or any flooding of the uh, Jordan River. This is strictly uh, 
can I say preacher language? I don't know if y'all have ever heard Mark Minnick preach, but he's very rich with uh, good metaphors, uh, language that cause, uh, conjures up in our mind an imagination of wanting something, uh, something we should avoid. But he, he's a master with language. Well, that's what I see the psalmist as. He's using this to say, you know what, it's like waters. We were as good as gone. They would have swept us away. The raging waters would have swept us away. So, to me, he's describing here the danger that they were about to face and they could have perished. However, God was on their side. Uh, so we can see the uh, descriptions here. Notice also in verse verse 8, notice the concluding thanksgiving. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, by the way, do you notice the way that concludes there, who made heaven and earth? You'll see that often in Psalms. It looks back to God in creation, in the creation week. Uh, I'll touch more on this when we get to Psalm 8. But there's a heavy emphasis, what we call creation theology. It all goes back, looks back to Genesis 1. But, you know, today we live in a day when evangelicals largely don't believe in the literal nature of Genesis 1 and 2. I just saw a video of Bruce Walkie. Bruce Walkie is the master Old Testament scholar, the leading. You know, I wonder about the evangelical anymore, but the leading evangelical Old Testament scholar. I've got all kind of his books. I've got everyone he's written. He's a master. But uh, this little video, well, he's never hold, held to a literal six days. He came from Dallas. Dallas had initially held on to the gap theory. Then they went to the modification of the gap theory called the pre-creation chaos theory. All that means is they got the gap out of Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is a summary statement. Genesis 2 is a description of judgment. So Genesis 1 has nothing to do with the start of creation. It's just a summarizing. So you have creation beginning in chaos. That's the term they use. Now, I never use that term. Chaos sounds like ancient Near Eastern deities because their creation is always out of chaos. And usually their gods, may I say, they weren't holy. Anything but. Think of the Greek mythology. I mean, I think I see it on TV all the time anymore. It's, it's pagan. The same thing was true with ancient Near Eastern mythology. You know, I think I might have told you, when I first went to Grace Seminary, uh, my first semester I took a class called Hebrew Exegesis of Job. And so the first week for the next class, we met the second week, we had to outline the book of Job, which, I mean, there's 42 chapters, so there's some tedium to it. And then we also had to compare the theology of the book of Job with ancient Near Eastern and Egyptian 
mythological text. So, you know, I remember, I wasn't sure what all the, I mean, I knew in, in Job, God was absolutely sovereign. you got to be a deadbeat not to see that. However, all the other ramifications of the theology, that's why I was taking the class. I was supposed to learn it. <laughs> so we had to use some key sources to figure out what it was. And then I had to compare that with eight, seven or eight pieces of either Egyptian or uh, Mesopotamian Jobin types. There's a lot of other types like Job, except they don't have the sovereign, true God speaking. But it's in the midst of gods and goddesses uh, jostling back and forth. So I remember uh, I had to study those, uh, then make it into a theological form. I put in 40 weeks for that next class, I mean 40 hours for the next class. And I remember telling my wife, you know, I can't make it through grace. I'm beat after the first week, and we've only just begun. But the one thing that I did read when you were reading that is their views on creation. Most of them start with chaos, and there's a recreation of the chaos. Well, that's exactly where Dallas Seminary was. Uh, it was very strong in that. Burr Unger, he, uh, he held to a modified gap theory. Bruce Walkie did. Then he held to modified and held to the framework hypothesis. And now with this recent video, it's only about three minutes long, but he now holds the theistic evolution. Friends, is that I mean, is that really evangelicalism? What is What's that? What is theistic? It just means they believe in evolution, but God now tucked into it. He usually is the one who created the Big Bang. So the earth is billions of years old. Oh, friends, I don't believe that for one minute. I think the earth is only a few thousand years old. I know people look askance. I take this book on an airplane with me. I like to do it to see what's going on with the person sitting next to me. But it says thousands, not billions of years ago. And sure enough, that does elicit some conversation. Well, that's the difference between where evangelicalism is and where Detroit Baptist Seminary is. We, uh, we take the old grace's view on a young earth. And there's a good reason for that. Most of our teachers are from grace. <laughs> so it doesn't, you don't have to wonder why. But when I see that, you know what that sounds like? I guess these people would say the maker of heaven and earth. He just generally made it. You know, it wasn't out of nothing. It was out of chaos. Well, that's scary. Somebody had to create the chaos. But even there, what they're doing, they're saying it came out of a, a judgment. And that judgment was billions of years. That, to me, it takes more faith to believe that mm -hmm. than it does to believe in young earth creationism. So, you know, I think we want to chart a course that takes the Bible face value. And if I mean, when you read the first few chapters of Genesis, it sounds like God recently created the heavens and the earth. I mean, you even look at the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. Those are different than other genealogies. Usually with other genealogies, 
they don't have when the son is born, but that they give it to the father. So I understand that the two genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, so I do take them for pretty tight chronology. So I don't see gaps between them. I think the Hebrew text in Genesis 11, I think the Septuagint's better because it includes Canaan. Canaan's included in Luke 3, 35 and 36. So at that point, I would say that the MT hasn't preserved the correct reading because Luke has a different reading. So because I take the New Testament tells us on some questionable things what the Old Testament was, I do follow that. But even that, it puts creation at 7,000 years ago. If you follow Usher's chronology, it's 6,000 years ago. So I, you know, I think I can defend it. Uh, but those are the days we're living in. So really, if you look at a lot of other churches, when I go somewhere, I always ask them, do you have a statement about creation? That's always a telltale sign to me. Let me talk to your pastor. I want to nail this down. And if there's any wiggle room, you know, I know that that's not, by the way, there's other doc, doctrines. But I think that's one of the keys for me saying that's not the church I want to identify with. Now, I know where your pastor is because I taught him. <coughs> so not only did I teach him, I'm a friend of his. <laughs> so I, I do know what he believes. But, uh, you know, inner city is the same way. And uh, there are other churches in our area that hold to the same thing. But there are a lot of churches that don't. I could name a few, but I don't want to embarrass anybody. Just ask me afterwards and I'll tell you. <laughs> yes, Paul? We're saying that it's clearly a, a watershed issue that will determine their theology in other areas mm-hmm. where they start off the creation. I, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't know that everybody's consistent, though. But it does seem to me that if they're wrong on that, they're going to be wrong in other doctrines. What's to say that Genesis 3 is not a metaphor? If Genesis 1, the standard evangelical line is Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is a different genre. They'll call it poetry or semi-poetic, but uh, that can't be the case. Uh, I wrote an article in coming to, or a chapter in Coming to Grips with Genesis. It's a reduction of two journal articles I did, but it's a critique of the framework hypothesis. And in that article, I recount why Genesis 1 has to be like Genesis 2 and 3. There's this grammatical device in Hebrew. You'll probably forget it, but let's just take a stab at it. It's called Vav. You know, my name's Bob. Bob, Bob. Pretty close. You got a little accent there. Vav's consecutive sequence. It's the Hebrew's way of showing a narrative device. What's interesting, in the book of Genesis, this narrative device is used 2,107 times. That averages to 42 times per chapter. So you'll see the narrative sequencing pretty clearly. In some places, it's a little nebulous, but a good two years of Hebrew will help you see the light on that. But generally, you can see it. But what's interesting, in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, there's 55 Bob consecutives. Friends, if that's not narrative, I'll eat that page. <laughs> I'll rip it out of my Bible and I'll, I'll have it for dinner. It's the same thing with Genesis 2 and 3. So how can you dismiss 
the first chapter, you have to do what Walkie said. Evolution's right. I mean, this is one of the ways of attacking it. Just say it's wrong, and then we interpret it in light of evolution, which means it means anything. So, it is interesting in this video, it's only three minutes, but he says the church has to concede the point that evolution's right. If we don't, we'll be outdated. We will be considered a cult. Nobody likes to be called cultic, but you know the passage I thought of when I listened to this? I thought of Jesus. He said, narrow is the way that leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. So, I've seen two leading evangelical scholars in the last year succumb to this. Tremper Longman, he has a lot of books. I have most of his books. He agrees with evolution, but he's gone further than walking. He says if you believe in evolution, there's no need to believe in a literal atom. Now, friends, that's scary. What keeps you from going there to Christ? Not much. In fact, may I say, Christ's work is meaningless if you don't have a literal atom because you have a model set up in Romans 5. You've got the first atom, you've got the second atom. If the first atom crumbles, then there's no hope for us. We have no salvation. It's as simple as that. So Longman's even gone further. Now I hope Walkie doesn't go that far, but he's gone pretty far. His students will go further. It's just a matter of time. <coughs> Longman's, well, Longman teaches at Westmont College in California. That's always been a bastion of a quasi-evangelical approach. Notice I use the word quasi. <laughs> That's what they claim. I doubt that myself. But uh, those are the days we live in, and so it is scary. So I don't want to, you, you know, I don't want to take away from the Bible its rich doctrine of creation. I think the psalmist is looking back to God actually literally creating it and creating it a few thousand years ago. And that becomes a basis for his theology. And all, well, many of the psalm writers, Psalm 104, for their theology. So if we take that away, we're going to lose our Bible. I mean, I, don't, I just don't see any other way around it. So once you give in on the first step, I think you'll give in in the second half. So to me, you know, the other issue, I think that this is inside, this is apart from my notes, but this is for free. Any, any cosmogony, any view of the beginnings of the heavens and the earth that has death and decay before the fall, that's a wrong theology. Romans 5, Romans 8 make that abundantly clear. Romans 8, you have the the curse, the futility that earth is uh, afflicted by, its longing for its day of redemption. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think the earth is actually uh, using words, but it is suffering death and decay. So, to me, any, any view of creation that has death of men, of animals, before the fall, that's a corrupt theology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is a key issue. Uh, the way people get around is just say Romans 5, 
is dealing with humanity. But there's a Pauline theology that's tied with Romans 8 where it has the earth under a curse of futility. So Paul's theology includes humanity, Romans 5, and also the earth, Romans 8. The critters, the animals, death and decay started with the fall of Adam. So any view that has death and decay beforehand, before the fall, you know, is wrong. Now the reason why I mention that is everybody, you don't have to be a theologian to understand that. Everybody can understand that argument about death and decay. So there's no reason to be blindsided by these people. So, you know what I say? This is a heresy. I think we can use that term. And it's something that we need to be guard, on guard against because that's the vast realm of evangelicalism. There's very few churches like your church in inner city. And there's other good churches. I think there's a few in Ohio. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, First Baptist of Troy, they're, they're pretty committed to that. Uh, in fact, they're very committed to it. Uh, First Baptist of Sterling Heights with Dell Ward, they're committed. I did a creation conference up there. Uh, I taught twice uh, a spring semester on creation up at Troy. I'm not sure... I know why I did it the second time because some people three years earlier weren't getting it. <laughs> so I was up there fighting a battle. So the people, I think, opposed to bless the church, which is good. Sometimes, you know, uh, I guess we rejoice when people come in, but sometimes I even rejoice more when they leave because they undermine the faith. So anyway, that's an aside, but I do want you to see his view of God and of the deliverance here that he's thanking God for, it's tied to his theology of creation. So this is a great psalm. Uh, I've, I've done some Thanksgiving, uh, Thanksgiving dinners. I'm, I guess you'd say I'm an after-dinner speaker in those cases. But... Uh, I always use Psalm 124. There's a good reason why. It's rich. I think we can apply it. For Israel, that was a natural, national deliverance. But may I say, we have a greater deliverance in our spiritual life. We were condemned. We were being swept away, can I say, by the raging waters of sin. Now, he's not describing that, but I think I can apply it that way. And that's what I usually do. So we can be also thankful because of the way God's delivered us. And the great thing about the message, it's only 20 minutes long, and if you're speaking after dinner, you are considered blessed if you only get 20 minutes. <laughs> At one time for a seminary dinner, we had a guy go over an hour. The people in the back, <laughs> they were just... Steamed. <laughs> I was steamed. <laughs> oh, there you are. You're eating all that food and you need a break. And I mean, you're going on for an hour. And faculty members aren't supposed to leave. But my wife got up and left. <laughs> anyway, well, enough of that. So you can see I have an outline here. The exhortation to acknowledge that the Lord has delivered his people from their enemy. Two, thanksgiving for the Lord's deliverance, verses 6 to 7. 
And then verse 8, a profession of trust in the Lord. So we've covered now the lament psalms, thanksgiving psalms. So now we're going to look at psalms of praise. Remember, we have these six genres we're looking at. These are literary types. And so like when I look at a lament psalm, I can compare that with another lament psalm. And sometimes when it's hard to interpret things, I look at another lament psalm, and often we end up in the same ballpark, even on the problem passages. So I've tried to identify what these, all these are here. The other national thanksgiving psalms are Psalm 65, 67, 75, 107, of course, 124, 136. Okay, now, are there any questions on that before we move on? One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 8. Uh, I don't believe in self-esteem. I cannot be anything. You know, I want to be a center in the NBA. I've never been able to jump up. I've never been able to really shoot a basketball, kind of think of it. So, I know Bill Murray, another comedian. Remember when he got out of his movie career and said he's going into basketball? He was mocking Michael Jordan when he went to play baseball. Well, I'm going to quit my seminary job and I'm going to go play basketball. <laughs> That'd be a big joke. So obviously some of this is overly. It's miscontrived. It's part of an evolutionary society. But what I do think we should recognize every creature, every human being is a fellow image bearer. And because of my views of the image of God and man, I have to deal with, with the Muslims that are in our area respectfully. I'm scared because of cell groups, though. So, that does so. I'm opposed to that. I'm opposed to Islam. It's a false way. There is no salvation in Islam. But I can deal with them as people because they are fellow image bearers. And whatever else we should learn about Muslims, you can't give them a simple, you know, a three-page, four-page track on how to be saved. Friends, they got to understand Christ. And until they do, they can't be saved. Same thing's true with Indians. In fact, it's even more so for Indians because they have all gods. Jesus just becomes one of them. So to me, as we see these people groups, uh, growing madly in the U.S. I think there's a sense we have to view them with some sort of respect because they're people. However, I do not respect a religion. I think it's a false religion. And so we need to be willing to stand up for the truth. But it's because of this song. It influences me greatly when I'm living in a culture that's changing drastically. So let's take a look at it. This is, this is Psalm 8, part of the Psalms of Praise. I, uh, that'll be the Psalm we'll look at. But we need to look at some general information before we look at the actual Psalm. The Psalms of Praise, sometimes they're also called hymns, are easily identifiable because of their emphasis on praise to God. If we compare the Psalms of Praise with Thanksgiving Psalms, 
Both are similar in that the praise of God is a dominant theme. However, the Thanksgiving psalm praises God for his specific response to a prayer request. Psalm of praise is more general. So in a Thanksgiving psalm, I always see that there's some type of prayer request that had been offered, God answered, and now the psalmist is thanking God for that. Here, the praise is more general. God is praised for His greatness and His good goodness. We could also compare the psalm of praise with the lament. Remember with the lament, the psalmist is at the lower end of the emotional spectrum. But with the hymn or the psalm of praise, he moves to the opposite end of joyful praise. In the psalms of praise, God may be praised as creator, as Israel's covenant Lord, and as the Lord of history. There's also another psalm that fits in with this category. It's the Psalms of Zion. God is being praised for Zion. So in this type of psalm, God is extolled for having Mount Zion, the place where his presence would be uniquely manifested. I know the Muslims, the Palestinians, I should say, the, the Arabs over there, they're, they're arguing with Israel still about that. But friends, I've got my money on the Jews. <laughs> I think they're going to win out in the end. So, I like those Psalms of Zion. Well, generally with these hymns or praise psalms, there's three parts. We have a call to praise, the motivation for the praise, and the concluding resolution. We will examine these parts in a little more detail. First, the call of praise may contain as many as three elements. It can have an exhortation to sing to the Lord, to praise, to exalt. The naming of the person or group to whom the exhortation is directed. And sometimes the, the mention of the mode of praise. Second, the actual praise, the motivation for the praise. God generally, this usually involves cataloging God's praiseworthy attributes and or actions. God's attributes and actions are related with a comment about God's character and attributes serving as commentary on his acts. God's praiseworthy acts and songs of praise focus on creation or nature and history. Third, the concluding resolution often ends with a prayer or a wish. By, by the way, should I say this is a biblical wish, a hope? So it's not a wish like, you know, uh, Alice in Wonderland or the Wizard of Oz or whatever those fantasies are. This is more of a hope. Well, let's look at Psalm 8. In Psalms praising God as creator, a major emphasis is placed on God's creative activity. In this psalm, David poetically pictures the creation of Genesis 1 with a focus on the apex of God's creation, man. It's his imago dei. It's not the monkey. It's, it's not so-and-so's ancestor, Barack's ancestor. Uh, it's not Nancy Pelosi's ancestor. Not even Harry Reid. So I wish that were the case. 
Um, but unfortunately, all three of those are still image bearers. So I have to have a level of respect. But I have to admit, it's very hard at this point. My, uh, my political savvy has been extremely dashed to the ground. And when I hear Obama wanting to reach out to Republicans, friends, it's too late. He had a year to do it, and he didn't do it. So, you know, I pray that God makes him a one-termer. Pray that he gets converted. Though it seems highly unlikely because he's so arrogant. God can't save arrogant people. However, may I say, if he's one of God's elect, he will bring them down. Mm-hmm. And he will be saved. So, I mean, I pray for that. That would be great. But I'm not going to be disappointed because all people are depraved. And we're condemned. So it takes a miracle to regenerate the highest or the lowest. So that's what we pray for, but I still despise this politics just between us girls. I mean, so anyway, let's let's look at this and see this major emphasis on his imago dei. Look at the three literary elements in Psalm 8. Notice the introductory praise to God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, Let me flip over here to Psalm 8 in my NIV. I think Nancy at this part is exactly the same as the NIV. Yeah, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, by the way, look at the conclusion of the psalm, verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice how it starts and ends the same way. So may I say the psalm is about God? The reason why I say that, I have a little book. What is the uh, The Praise of Man? It's an exposition of Psalm 8. Well, I recognize man's got a pretty high place here. But friends, there's somebody who's the, can I say, the ultimate, and that's God. And we can see that from verse 1 and verse 9. So it is about the praise of God. Although we will see that of all creation, man is exalted above it all. So he says... uh, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Um, Here in verse 2, there's a little bit of a difference between the two versions. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Well, you can see the first part. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength. that's okay, but the, the next part of the verse, uh, because of your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It goes back uh, from the lips of children and infants. You have established strength where in the NIV you have ordained praise. There, there's a little difference there. Uh, the next part... Uh, that's not a problem. But I don't want to overwork the differences there. One says praise, one says strength. I think in the final analysis, it's much to do about nothing 
for just a normal reading of the passage. So this psalm we can see from verse 1 and verse 9. Let me use a technical term. This is called an envelope construction. The technical word is inclusio, but we all can remember an envelope. You seal it, and it's, it starts where it ends. It's called an envelope. That's exactly what this psalm is. It's an envelope construction. It ends like it started. So here God is praised for, for his role as creator. Look at verses 3 to 8. Notice the motivation for praising God. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Now if you look at that, notice that first five. The New American Standard Version has, you have made him a little lower than God. Well, both the NIV and the ESV, they have it right as heavenly beings. Now, let me just explain what's going on with the differences there. There's a, there's a name for God in the Old Testament, Elohim. It's as opposed to Yahweh, God's covenant name. Well, with Elohim, it most of the time refers to God, but not always. Uh, sometimes Elohim can be used to refer to judges, Exodus 21 and 22. Uh, sometimes the sons of God in, in the book of Job, they're angels. Now, the reason why I go with uh, the reading in the NIV and the ESV this is cited in the New Testament. Uh, and with that citation uh, in Hebrews, the New Testament has that translated with angelos, angels. I think it's Psalm 2, I mean Hebrews 2, uh, I think the first part of it. So, because of that, I've always felt like that was divinely given scripture. It tells me what nuance I, I ought to understand that Elohim is being used with. I understand that there's a subunit of God. It's not God. These are, uh, well, what can I say? Beings that are eternal, somewhat eternal. They're beyond the human. So, but even when it's used of man, somebody in a position of authority. So these are authoritative ones. So whether this refers to judges or angels, that is used with Elohim. Now, predominantly refers to God. So I can understand why man does that. The problem is in the New Testament. It cites it as angels. 
Because of that, I understand that that tells me what Elohim means in this context. So these are ones emending the text. It's just telling us what meaning is used with Elohim. So I go with that way primarily because of the New Testament. But I think, does anybody have the New American Standard Bible here? Jim? You have God there, don't you? And so? Yes. Okay. Uh, any other translations of that? Anybody have anything else? No, I didn't think so. I could use my Palm Pilot. I got five or six different translations. They call me the walking Bible. <laughs> I say that time in secret, of course. I've got a Hebrew Bible, I've got a Greek Bible, I've got five, six different English translations, so I am the walking Bible. <laughs> but uh, here, I think the NIV and the ESV are right in putting this as heavenly beings. Now, let's move past that point and let's look at the overall flow here. It does say in the subtext, so Elohim, the angel. Yes. Yeah, it does allow for, but they thought the primary meaning was God. Right. Because that's what they use in the translation. So, let's look at the flow of the context. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. Well, fingers is obviously an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have fingers. Um, God is spirit. He manifests his presence in, in the person of Christ. He does have fingers. But for God himself, he is spirit. Um, notice he says, the moon and the stars which have set in place. Let's hold our fingers here. Let's turn back to Genesis 1. This is referring to the first chapter of Genesis. In particular... This is referring to day four. So let's look at that. Uh, drop down to verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the dark from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. Now notice, there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So how do I know it's the fourth day? It says it right there. And by the way, notice here, notice the sequence of the numbers. You have the fourth day, then there'll be the fifth day, then there'll be the sixth day, the seventh. We had day one, day two, day three. Um, now while we're here, may, may I just explain to you why I take it that these are literal days? It's all very easy. When I look at there was the evening, there was morning, that sounds like a literal day. You know, uh, in Exodus 20, verse 11, the reason for worshiping for Israel on the Sabbath is because of the creation. For six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. So, 
That seems to me to be a strong text. You know what? The Seventh Day, day Adventist is really a strong text. Because they're Seventh Day Adventists. So they consistently argue for the days here being literal days. They say, I don't know if it's because of biblical purity, but I think it's more because of Ellen G. White. Ellen G. White believed in literal days. They followed the Queen Mother. I mean, that's, I think that's more the issue. But notice here, there's, there's a number of ways we can see that these are literal days. We have the, uh, the expression, there's evening, there's morning. The third day. Every time a numerical qualifier Jews would say in the Old Testament, it always refers to a literal day or a portion thereof. And I know of no exceptions to it. I think the word day is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. Surely we can know what the word means when it's used 2,000 times. If we can't, there's, there's no help for it. Now, by the way, sometimes the word day can be used metaphorically. You have the day of the Lord. The reason why with the day of the Lord that's used as a metaphor, at that point the word day is part of what we call a compound grammatical construction. That it means it's closely related to the word that follows. In fact, in Hebrew, that word day loses its accent and it's swallowed up in the Lord. When you have that type of construction, you will have the word they use as a metaphor. So to me, there's really two conditions for the word they being a literal day. First of all, it is, it is a singular noun. Secondly, it's not part of a compound grammatical construction. Most people get to see, because in Genesis 2-4, They'll say, well, I see the word day is used in this passage, and it can't be a reference to literal day. And when they see, see that, I can see the point. Based on that passage, it would look like that's true. That's referring to all six days. But notice there, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. NASB and the ESB has in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. But the NIV has when. Now why would the NIV translate it as when? Well, this is part of a compound grammatical construction. It's an idiom. In most cases, that idiom is translated when. It's used 60 sometimes in the Old Testament as part of this compound grammatical construction. And we can see there that it's better understood as when. So it's not stressing a day. It's just a temporal conjunction. So now how do I know the NIV is right? Look at the first part of verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Notice the last part of verse 4 has when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So because of the parallel there, I know absolutely that end of day is an idiom meaning when because of the parallel. And we have the verbs create, one's passive, one's active, uh, or we have created, that's passive, made, active. Uh, so we can see it's referring to the heavens and the earth. 
So it, it's very clear that this should be translated when. But the reason why it should be translated when is because it's part of a compound grammatical construction. So anytime somebody uses that argument, I try to explain this compound grammatical construction. You know, we have the same thing in English. My father's day was a great time. Well, I'm talking about his lifetime. Now, how is it that that's not a literal day? Because it's closely related with father. That's what shades it to a metaphor. But when the word day is used by itself, pretty much in English, by itself, that's generally a 24-hour period or a portion thereof. I'm saying the same thing's true in Hebrew. Whenever you have this noun used by itself, it's singular, and it's not part of that compound grammatical construction. It's always a literal day. So that is a key argument. Um, you know, I've been in some, I wouldn't say they're debates, but they've been lively academic exchanges <laughs> uh, with, with other scholars, evangelical scholars, who I did not agree with. And they always come back to the Genesis 2-4 passage. So at this one engagement I was at, I'm trying to defend literal days, and he pulls this out. Now, I had his paper in advance, and he tried to go through the Bible with all 60 uses where day is part of a compound grammatical construction prove that it means day. Well, there's a few very clear-cut cases where it can't mean day. Well, that's what I pointed out to him in our, in our debate. That wasn't wrong, much of it. They're usually academic types. They're usually pretty collegial. It's usually the preacher's meetings where they become a little hostile at points. I don't know, you need to go to a good ordination council. <laughs> uh, I don't think Matt owns ordination council. <laughs> I think what's happened in time, because of, probably because of the seminary, we've accrued churches that are like-minded, and usually those that are Arminian, uh, those who don't agree with us on creation, they're not invited to our ordination council. We have enough people without inviting them. Now, occasionally somebody would be invited because somebody came from a neo background. And so their pastor influenced them, and then they may come. But that's always in an order. So, to me, that's gratifying. But because of that, I do understand that we have literal days. The strongest thing that you can do to support that, go to Exodus 20, verse 11. Mm -hmm. Exodus 31, you also have the same construction. I think it's verses 15 through 17. Israel is to worship on the Sabbath because God created the heavens and the earth in six days. In fact, I like the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, uh, God created the heavens and the earth and all things therein in the space of six days and all very good. You know what? Doctrinal confessions have compromised on that. It's the more modern ones because they're trying to put in a little bit more time. You know, we use the New Hampshire Confession, but if you notice their statement on creation, it's vague. But when the writers of the Westminster Confession say, Second London Baptist Confession as well, when they say, in the space of six days, 
Doesn't that sound like they believe in six literal days? Further, when they say, uh, and all very good, it sounds like Genesis 1.31. Notice when God completes creation, the creation week, God saw all that he made, and it was very good. Now, a few times earlier, he says it's good. Now, why does he say very good? I mean, when God says it's good, that's, that's very good. So why does he throw the superlative in? Well, the creation week's over. Man's been created. God now works in providence. At that point, he was exerting his divine energy to create the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And so he says it's all very good. Well, that's good enough for the Westminster writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's good enough for me. And I think it's good enough because the Bible says it. I don't need the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're Baptists. We've never been so loyal to the creeds. However, I do think I esteem a little bit more seriously than the average person does. I think these are formations when there's been conflict in the church and they're crafting out precise statements. So I have to have good reason. And, and I don't agree with Westminster Confession on Sunday being the Sabbath. So there's areas where I do disagree. But in the main, I think it's good stuff. So I think we should. Well, so I think you can see my point. I'll come back to that when we come back because there's a few other things I'd like to share with you about creation. But then we'll move to the height of it. And that's man. Man and woman. I shouldn't just say man generically. It's Adam and Eve. So uh, we'll do that. I think next week you're on vacation. Okay, we are too. Well, you're, you're gone for two weeks? No, I'm saying a week. Oh, okay. Two a week off and then back. Okay, okay. So we'll see you then and we'll pick up with Psalm 8 and look how good it was for Adam and Eve in the first original creation. It was good.